Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. If you'll take your outlines, you will see that tonight the message is on freedom. And you'll also need to take your Bibles and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul will address this subject that I think is important to all of us. You know, if you are like me, you have been absolutely amazed at some of the events that we have seen in Eastern Europe. It's almost incredible the wave of change that is just sweeping over that group of nations and all the uh, uh, upheavals that are occurring that you and I never thought would be possible. In fact, almost every night on the news, it seems like we witness to one degree or another, some new political miracle that we never would have thought could ever take place in those countries. Think about in Hungary where just recently they outlawed communism and reinstated a social democracy. Or how an outlawed trade union just six months ago in the nation of Poland would now become the leading political party. Or tens of thousands of people marching in Bulgaria, now Czechoslovakia, some 500,000. Those are amazing things that are actually taking place. And of course, the most amazing of all, this uh, last week or two, when the Berlin Wall, in a sense, came down, which divided East and West Berlin. You know, almost daily, that which was unthinkable to you and me has become a reality in those countries. And I think what we're witnessing in those teeming masses that you see gathered in the different city squares is something that God has already put in our heart to begin with that demands expression. And that is this cry for freedom. We have it in us. We want it. We want to experience it. We, we in a sense, were created to have this freedom of spirit. We were created to soar, so to speak. And in those countries, what we're seeing is a people who for years have been oppressed and exploited by the obvious tyranny of communism now rising up. In fact, I said this morning, it's almost ironic that you would see the quote proletariat, if you've read your Karl Marx, rising up and overthrowing the very form of government that the proletariat was intended to create. The question tonight, though, is what kind of freedom will they inherit from us? Certainly, if they adopt Western-style democracy, you will find people who will have then the right to vote, the right of free speech, the right of free expression, the freedom to do what they want, with whom they want. But as exciting as those things are to Eastern Europeans, I just wonder if they're going to be truly free. What is real freedom? Are people who have everything they want, are they free? It's been interesting, hasn't it, as you've seen those East Berliners come through the wall that probably the most graphic picture is of these East Berliners standing, looking in the windows of different shops in West Berlin, seeing what they have lacked. And almost by insinuation, you get through that telecast that, boy, when they have these things, they're really going to be free. Is having everything you want freedom? Is doing anything you want, is that freedom? Is believing anything you want, is that freedom? As I've thought about those things and I've seen those people with those big smiles of expectation on their faces, there is something deep down inside of me that feels a little uncomfortable about what these people really think they're going to have once they become a democracy. Somehow, and I don't know exactly why I feel this way, but I feel like there is some deceit in those expectations. Oh, I want them to have my kind of government. I want them to be able to vote and to have the right of free speech and to do the things that many of us enjoy. But will they really 
be free. See, I want to grab those people as they move through the wall and I want to tell them as they come through, yeah, it's great over here, but let me tell you, we have some walls of our own. We have some prisons of our own. They're not like yours. They're not as obvious. They're much more subtle in their nature, but they're just as tyrannical. You see, ours here are not political prisons. Ours are personal prisons. Some of us have locked ourselves up, so to speak, to our own self-made prisons by pursuing everything, thinking that somehow everything would fulfill. And only the few who have everything have that myth broken and know that it didn't bring freedom. Sometimes it brought just the opposite. Doing whatever we wanted. Many of us have run full steam ahead to do whatever we wanted, to enjoy as much of it as we wanted. And at the end of that road, we discover addiction. There are all kinds of addictions today. All kinds of cells that people have locked themselves into because they did whatever they wanted. It seemed so wonderful in the beginning. Now they have to go to a halfway house or a detox center to get out of the prison that they've created for themselves. We've redefined selfishness in our country as moral when God calls it sin. And in doing so, we've run after that selfishness to the fullest extent only to find the prison of emptiness. So what does it mean to be free? You know, as I see those Eastern Europeans coming across, I just want to tell them, hey, we're not necessarily really free here. We're not necessarily what you expect. Here, we have prisons of our own. The French philosopher Pascal said, all men seek happiness, there are no exceptions. Yet all men complain, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're free or oppressed, which has gone on so long without pause or change that it really ought to convince us that we in and of ourselves are incapable of obtaining this good by our own efforts. This infinite abyss can only be filled with an infinite object. Democracy is not going to answer fully the outcries we see in Eastern Europe concerning freedom, but God can. And that's really the subject that Paul is addressing here in 2 Corinthians 6. You see, the people of Corinth were free. They weren't like the Jews in Palestine who felt the oppression of the Roman whip These Corinthians liked the Roman peace. They prospered under the Roman peace. The Pax Romana. They enjoyed it. They were a free people, but they were also an empty people. And that's why they were so hungry for this good news that Paul, years before, had shared with them as he introduced them to Jesus Christ. And they had embraced this new faith in Christ. Then Paul moved on. Unfortunately, the Corinthians had also come in these later days since Paul's departure to believe that somehow he could not be trusted. I don't know how much you know about the book of 2 Corinthians, but it's very clear that some false teachers had moved in after Paul's departure and had somehow convinced these friends of the apostle that Paul really didn't have the integrity that he claimed, that he was insincere, that he was a manipulator of the first order, that he was out for himself, that he was really just using these people for his own advancement. And the Corinthians had begun to believe those accusations. Paul knew if they continued to believe it, though, they would in time jeopardize this freedom that should be theirs in Christ. You know, if you look through the little letter of 2 Corinthians, you find all kinds of subtle pleas of self-defense from the Apostle Paul. He cloaks them most of the time, but they surface every once in a while in the letter. And I thought I'd give you just a a little review of that. Let's turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I want you to notice some of the defenses Paul makes concerning himself. For instance, look at verse 11 in the first chapter. 
or excuse me, verse 12. Paul says, for our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. What he's saying is, is we have a clear conscience as to how we minister to you. We didn't do it because we had some gain, some hidden agenda. We did it out of a clear conscience, in holiness, in the grace of God. Look there in verse 18. Suddenly he answers another charge. He says, but as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, that is by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but yes in Him. Now why is he saying that? Because one of the accusations is that Paul spoke out of two sides of his mouth for his own personal convenience. He'd tell one person yes and another person no. He'd tell them anything that would advance his schemes. Paul's saying, that's not how I came, do you? I didn't come speaking out of two sides of my mouth. I came in sincerity. It was just yes in Christ. Look at the end of the chapter in verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. In other words, we didn't come to try to control you. That's what that word Lord means. We didn't come to dominate you. We came to work with you so that you could have even greater freedom. Turn over to 2 Corinthians 4. If you'll remember, because we just preached this passage not too long ago. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul kind of reveals all the hardships he's been through. Look there at verse 8. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. The question is, as you move through that, why did he put himself into all those desperate situations? Why did he subject himself to all this danger and heartache? Well, he answers it in verse 15. For all things are for your sakes, you Corinthians. You know why we did it? You know why we've suffered? You know why we've died to ourselves? It's for you. I think the best statement is over in chapter 7, though, verse 2. In chapter 7, he just says it very clearly, doesn't he? He says, make room for us in your hearts. See, they had moved him out of their hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. Now the reason he is making these kind of appeals and pleas is because one of the hardest hurdles to overcome in human relationships, and we've all experienced this to one degree or another, is when you're trying to reach out to someone that you love, but that person has become suspicious of your motives. Uh, They think that you're trying to control them. They think that you're just trying to do what pleases you. You don't really care about them. You're just trying to get them to follow your particular pathway. And so, they draw back. Maybe you've got a teenager like that. Maybe you've got a friend who's beginning to run around with the wrong group and you're reaching out to him and he's wanting you to back off. Leaders experience this. They, they, they may lay themselves out, but in time, if people start thinking, well, maybe he's got this, or they listen to somebody saying, oh, he's just trying to get you to do what he wants. It can be very difficult. It becomes almost a no-win situation. And the reason for that is the harder you try to make these appeals, the more suspicious they become. The more you say, no, let me share with you my motives. And you begin to lay those things out, the more they can easily say, no, you're just trying to take advantage of me. You're just, you're just trying to trap me so that I'll do what you want me to do. That's what these Corinthians were experiencing from Paul. And so Paul was really in a difficult spot. And the question is, what does he do? Nothing? No, he doesn't do nothing. What he does is he pursues them. That's the only path. He just continues to reach out to them. 
He doesn't give up to them. And the way he pursues them is in this letter. And what this letter contains is not harsh, condemning words. What this letter contains is an appeal in loving and transparent tones. Look in verse 11. He says, Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. In other words, I've said it as best I can say it. I've laid myself out. I've spoken totally transparently to you. Now, he did that in a proper kind of transparency. You know, oftentimes, we feel like just because we feel it, we can say it. And so we, can, we, we think just because we feel it, it justifies saying. In fact, there was a time just a few years ago when counselors in different parts of society were saying, just be honest, just let it all hang out. And so people would say all kinds of things to one another, which is really nothing more than immaturity being expressed there. You can open your mouth and speak freely and wrongly. Paul didn't speak that way. But you know, I have an example of someone who did. It's my daughter. When she spoke freely a number of years ago to a classmate. You know, Rebecca has a real imaginative personality. And I asked her if I could share this since it was several years ago and she's more grown up now. But she got in a fight with one of her best friends, Rachel Farrar, Steve Farrar's daughter. And uh, they ride horses together and they draw together and evidently they started competing with one another and kind of got out of sorts with one another. And so Rebecca sent Rachel this note in class. Now the reason I have this note is because the teacher intercepted it, sent it home. Well, here's what she said to Rachel. She opened her mouth wide and freely in this little note. She said, Dear Rachel, I hope we can be, and it's got X friends forever because I don't like you. You are such a bragger and loud mouth. And you cannot draw or ride horses at all. And down below it's got two little faces and one's got you and the other's got me. And I guess the one, the you, is Rachel. It says, I've been drawing horses best of all. And then the other picture, looking back at this face, says, so what? And then she concludes the letter. At first I said to myself, is that Rachel's head or did your neck throw up? <laughs> wow. I mean, that's opening freely, isn't it? That's just telling it like it is. And then it concludes, I hate you, your ex-friend, Rebecca. Well, they have made up since then, and they're good friends. But you know, the reason I use that is because, can you imagine that this apostle who has forsaken everything for these people, laid himself out, given everything to them, and yet now they are suspicious of his motives? Can you imagine what the apostle in the flesh would have liked to have written to these people? Hmm? If he really let it hang out. But you know, when he shares, he shares not as a person who's immature. He shares as a man of God. And so he reaches out to them in love, trying to embrace them and to help them understand that his involvement with them is not for his best. His involvement with them is for their best. Look at verse 12. He says, you are not restrained by us, Corinthians, O Corinthians, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now that's an interesting insight. In fact, we could spend the whole evening just on this verse because there is such wisdom in verse 12. You see, the word restrain means to confine. It means to crowd. We used to talk about, you're crowding my space. You know, you're, you're stepping into my space. In other words, the issue is freedom and you're beginning to crowd my freedom, so back off, Jack. That's what the Corinthians were saying to Paul. When you keep reaching out to us, telling us how you love us and what we need to be doing, you're, you're infringing on our freedoms. We don't like that. You're holding us back. You're trapping us. You're making us feel trapped and guilty. See, you're... 
you're restraining us, Paul. And Paul says to them, no, you are not restrained by us. You're not being held back by us. Have you ever noticed how people, Christians, when they begin to get rebellious, when they begin to play with the wrong things, that oftentimes they will blame the guilt they feel for that rebellion on the people who love them most? It's really interesting. You know, a teenager who gets out of control and the mom and dad are trying to help them steer the right direction so they can steer them into freedom. The teenager is saying, I want to be free. I want to be me. You're making me feel trapped. Back off. And they blame them for the guilt that they feel. That's the way these Corinthians felt. But notice Paul's choice wisdom in the next line. He says, you are restrained. You're cramped. You're imprisoned, not by us, but by your own affections. In other words, the reason you Corinthians don't feel free is not because of me. The problem's not in me. The problem is in you. Notice that word affection. Some of you have a little notation on the side that the word affections just means inward parts. You're not restrained by us out here. You're restrained by what's going on in here. Because you know what, Corinthians? You're not being consistent with who you are. You're a child of God. You've got the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And now you're tampering with unholy things. And just because there's guilt in there, real guilt, and you're beginning to box yourself in, you think you can dispose of those bad feelings, that entrapment kind of feeling, by blaming me. But it's not me. It's you. Remember when I was first a Christian in college. I'd only been a Christian a short time, and right after I became a Christian, I fell right back into doing what I did before I became a Christian. And yet, at that point, it wasn't the same. Something was different. And because it created such a turmoil in my soul, I looked for objects to blame. And I remember walking into the dorm one night and seeing a group of guys that I had formerly associated with having a Bible study, and I just wanted to curse them. I didn't know why. It's kind of like they were reminding me of something I needed to be doing and I didn't want them putting any pressure on me. Of course, they didn't even know I saw them. But I just wanted to get mad at them. Why? Because that's the only place I could blame because I didn't want to turn on me. That's why. Paul is saying, you feel trapped. If you feel like you're losing your freedom even when you live in a free country, it could be you're not being consistent with who you are in here. And that's the greatest loss of freedom of all, of all, is to not be true to your calling in Christ. Then look at verse 13. He says to them, Now in like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us. See what Paul is offering here is the solution to that entrapment feeling. And he says it's not by drawing back from me, but it's in opening up to me. You need to open up. You need to express what you're feeling. You need to become vulnerable and honest. You know, there are a lot of wives who would love for their husbands to follow that last directive. Open wide. How's it going, George? All right. What's bothering you, George? Nothing. Nothing? No, nothing. Well, let's talk about it. Nothing to talk about. Oh, yes, there is. Your freedom is at stake, George. That's what's the matter. You don't know that. But by holding yourself in, by confining those thoughts and feelings to the secret recesses of yourself, what you are doing brick by brick is constructing your own cell. And you won't be free. A lot of parents who would love for their teenagers to follow that last line, open wide to us. It's very difficult for some teenagers because, quite frankly, during the teenage years, they're not really sure who they are. There are times in those years where 
at one time they think they're this, another time they think they're that, and they're not really ever sure. And it's hard to open up because you don't know who you are. So you get a lot of grunts and uh-huhs and mm-hmm and fine and okay and those kind of things from your teenager. But they need to open up. Because if they don't open up, they're not going to be free. I think a good definition of freedom is this. A person who is truly free is a person who can be properly transparent with anyone. They don't mind opening up and revealing what's inside, doesn't matter who they're with. I mean, they're not ashamed or embarrassed about what's in there. They can share easily and freely with themselves and with others. doesn't bother them. It's not painful or embarrassing. There's nothing to hide. They are congruent with their calling in Christ. And when they're that way, they are free. On the other hand, if you're isolated from people, if you live in secret, if there are little things over there that you could never really share because you'd be embarrassed with your Christian friends, if you tend to get in little groups and avoid others because you've had conflict and maybe you're driving down the road and here they come and so you pull into a parking lot just to avoid eye contact or you're walking down the hall in church and you see them and you step inside the bathroom so you don't have to say hi. This is America. Is that free? Is that freedom? No, that's a self-made prison. Because freedom doesn't come when you have open borders. True freedom is when you have open relationships. So Paul's first cry of freedom to these people, even as they live in a free land, is open up. Become honest and vulnerable. Then there's a second one in verses 14 through 16. Kind of a second call to freedom. It's watch out. You see, you can lose your freedom by walling off from people. You can also lose it by aligning yourself with those who, quite frankly, are spiritually in the dark. Look at verse 14. He says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What does he mean? Don't be bound together with unbelievers. Well, let me tell you what it first doesn't mean. Because some have over-exaggerated this admonition by the apostle, and they said, well, you can't have non-Christian friends, you can't go to school with non-Christians, that's public school, uh, you can't work with non-Christians, it's kind of a blanket almost withdrawal or disengagement from the world. Is that what Paul means here? I don't think so. In fact, Probably the best insight is let the apostle talk for himself. You might turn back to 1 Corinthians 5. Keep your hand there in 2 Corinthians 6. But in 1 Corinthians 5, when he's talking about a case of a rebellious Christian in the Corinthian church, he makes a statement that I think clarifies what he means by not being bound together with unbelievers. Look at verse 9. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, now, that was a previous letter. Evidently, they had misunderstood that. So in verse 10, he says, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with the idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. Now, you know what the key word in that passage is? It's the word associate. See, Paul when he says, do not be bound together with unbelievers, by what he says here in 1 Corinthians 5, he's saying, by not being bound, I don't mean don't associate. In fact, you should associate. Remember Jesus when he prayed for his disciples? He said, Father, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but I ask that you protect them from the evil one. In other words, my disciples. I don't want them to go out of the world. I don't want them not to have associations with non-Christians, but I do ask that you keep the world out of them. So the issue of not being bound together, at least as a starting place, is not talking about not contacting non-Christians. It's talking about the issue of contamination. But let's go further. How about the word bound together? What does that mean? 
If you've got a King James Bible, it says unequally yoked. And uh, quite frankly, I think that's the better translation. Because it surfaces a word picture. I mean, when you think of unequally yoked, a farming kind of picture comes to your mind, doesn't it? You see these animals out and they're hitched up and harnessed. Maybe they're plowing the field. And that's exactly what Paul wants you to think about when he says don't be bound together with unbelievers. He's saying don't get in a formal arrangement with them. I mean, animals don't just casually, informally get yoked up. That's kind of a, a formal type experience where that harness is placed so they will work together. He says unequally yoked. Have you ever seen two different animals pulling a plow? No, I haven't. But I know it would probably be a miserable experience. In fact, in the Mosaic Law back in Deuteronomy 22, it says not to yoke an ox with a donkey together. And when I think about that, I think it becomes pretty obvious because that would be a very painful experience. They are different in nature, different in temperament, different in personality, different in strength, different in the gait that they walk. So one is either being dragged through the field or the other is being choked by the one who holding them up. It would be a very miserable experience for both. That same analogy applies here. Because when an unbeliever yokes up, so to speak, with a believer, what they are deciding to do is they are deciding to do something far more than just merely associating right at work or just as friends. What they are deciding to do is they are deciding to formally integrate their lives with one another. They're saying to one another, let's pool our talents. Let's pool our, our relationship and our our strengths and those kind of things in our time together and let's formally go through life together. That's what it means to yoke up. Therefore, if I were answering the question, what does it mean to be bound together? I would give you two answers. There's two spots on your outline you can fill in in this regard. The first would be this. Bound together does not mean informal associations, but formal arrangements between people that can't be easily broken. That's what it means to be bound together. We're talking about formal arrangements that can't be easily broken. You can't get out of them easily. Then secondly, to be bound together means a formal arrangement that doesn't make spiritual sense. The reason I say that is because of the questions that follow in verse 14 and 15, it says, What partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship, light with darkness? What harmony, Christ with Bilal? That's another term for Satan. Leaders of two different kinds of kingdoms. What is a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of God. You know, if you yoke up with somebody in a tight relationship, isn't it interesting that the words that Paul uses here is exactly what you're hoping you'll get out of that relationship? Look at them again. Don't you want a deep partnership? Don't you want deep fellowship? Harmony in that relationship? Don't you want to have all things in common that you can share with one another? Agreement? on issues because you think alike, you have the same value system and those kind of things? Sure you do. That's what a good relationship has. But Paul says that's impossible when you join together two people who are fundamentally different in nature. Don't be unequally yoked, Paul says. Now, where could we apply that kind of formal arrangement that's not easily broken. Well, I think it's obvious where some of them are. Let me give you three real quickly. First would be the unequal yoke of marriage. The unequal yoke of marriage. I cannot think of any test that a single person has to experience that's harder than this statement in regards to marriage. 
not to be unequally yoked in marriage with an unbeliever. Because when you fall in love with somebody or you have these strong, powerful feelings for another person, it makes you want to think that this is authentic. This is the real thing. This is my calling. This is my destiny. Because those passions and those feelings are so intense. It makes you want to doubt this spiritual leader who's speaking to you. Just like the Corinthians. It makes you want to think, oh, he's just trying to use me. He doesn't really have the best for me. What he's saying here is to somehow manipulate me and keep me from real joy in life. That's how we can twist the apostles' words and put them back on him, just like the Corinthians did. It's a hard statement. Don't be unequally yoked to a single person. Easily rationalized. Like this one young lady who wrote in her diary on the day of her wedding. She said, Dear God, I can hardly believe that this is my wedding day. I know I haven't been able to spend much time with you lately with all the rush of getting ready for today, and I'm sorry. I guess too I feel a little guilty when I try to pray about all this since Larry still isn't a Christian. But oh Father, I love him so much. What else can I do? I just somehow know that he must be saved. You must save him some way, somehow. You know how much I prayed for him, the way we've discussed the gospel together. I don't know. He's not antagonistic, but I don't understand why he still hasn't responded. Oh, if only he were a Christian. Dear Father, please bless our marriage. I don't want to disobey you, but I do love him, and I want to be his wife. So please be with us. And please don't spoil my wedding day. How does God hear a prayer like that? The God who has given us His Spirit, His Word, His church, other believers to encourage us in the path of righteousness. How does He hear a prayer like this? Probably like this. Dear Father, I don't want to disobey You, but I must have my own way. At all cost. For I love what you do not love, and I want what you do not want. So please be a good God and deny yourself and let me take over this time. If you don't like this, all I ask is that you bite your lip and say nothing and don't spoil my wedding day. Let me have what I want. And you know what? He will. He will let you have what you want. That's your choice. That's your, quote, freedom. He'll give that to you. But in time, what you will realize as so many before you is that you have sold your real freedoms for a superficially compatible relationship. You've sold it out. In time, you'll want to go real deep with that person. You'll want to share all things in common, but they can't begin to plunge those depths because there's no spiritual nature to plunge those depths with. You want to have all things in common, but they won't understand what some of your commonalities are because they have no understanding about what those things are. You'll want somebody to be a soulmate. Somebody who can share the very depths of your personality. But as many have found over time, they don't have a soulmate. They may have a cellmate, but not a soulmate. And here is the apostle who gave up his life, not because it was of any advantage to him, but he gave up this life because he wanted you, the Corinthians, the Americans, he wanted you to really be free. That's what He sets before you. Do you believe that? Then there's a second yoke that's unequal. It's the yoke of work. And by that, I do not mean work associations. Many of us have to work next to non-Christians and we have good non-Christian friends that we interact with. But when I think Paul is addressing the application of work here, it would be personal partnerships. The kind of things where two people join together 
in guiding a particular business venture and they're going to share their life and direction together and they're going to formally contract to do so. That puts you sometimes in a very difficult situation. Like a friend that I had, uh, he and I were flying overseas one time. We got in this long conversation about a business situation that occurred in his life a number of years back. Man came to him and offered him an incredible sum of capital that would really move his real estate company along if they would just enter into this 50-50 agreement. Problem was, the guy wasn't a Christian. So my friend decided to take some time to think about it. In fact, he went away all by himself, took his Bible, and for three days he just read his Bible and prayed and asked God to answer his prayer as to whether he should join into this business agreement. And at the end of the three days, he told me there was no answer. And then he kind of smiled and he said, so I took no answer as meaning yes. One thing any person who walks with Christ for any length of time discovers is when heaven is silent about your prayer request, it means one of two things. Wait or no. Never yes. Wait or no. But he took it as a yes. And so he entered into this agreement and pooled their resources. And one day a bank called him and told him that he was millions of dollars in debt. That was the first he had heard of it. But it was because he was in this unequal yoke. And for many, many years, he has continued to struggle to dig out of that mess. Then he told me, he said, you know, Robert, he said, I learned a good lesson. And that lesson is, don't ask God for an answer when he's already written it down. You know? It was there. I just didn't want to read it. So there's the unequal yoke of personal partnerships. Then finally, there's the unequal yoke of what I call close friendships. Now remember, I didn't say friendships. I said close friendships. Those kind of friendships where you're getting your value system, who, who become your environment. You know, the friends you choose, the close friends you yoke up with are your environment. And your environment has immeasurable impact on your life. Far more than any worship service or seminar. Who you run around with, your gang, so to speak, has an incredible spiritual impact on you. Are your close friends moving you along in the Christian life? Or are they holding you back? Are they encouraging you or could they be deceiving you? Are they moving you to freedom or are they building you a nice cell block that in time will limit the freedoms that God so graciously wants to grant to you. Well, those are some, some, some considerations. And maybe, because I know in this particular audience, on Sunday night we have a large group of singles, and maybe you're thinking as I've talked about these things, you're going, gee, I mean, you want to take away my my relationships, some of my relationships that I'm running around with, you're wanting to take away maybe my boyfriend or my girlfriend, what's left? Well, Paul answers that in the last part of 2 Corinthians 6. Notice what he says. Or rather, notice what God says. These are quotations of God from the Old Testament. He says, I will dwell in them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch that which is unclean. And I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. So let me ask the question again. If you gave up those things, what's left? And the answer according to God is me. A powerful, fulfilling relationship with me. You know, as I've watched those East Germans walk into West Germany, one of the first things you see as they come through the wall there is friends or relatives on the other side greeting them and hugging them. The West German government gives them free of charge 50 Deutschmarks that they can go out and buy a little Western-style freedom, which is things. 
I think of that illustration because I think about God who's standing outside some of the walls we've built waiting for us to come out. Waiting for us to come to our senses. And when we walk out of those things, He's there to greet us. Notice it says, I will welcome you. He wraps His arms around us and He gives us something too. It's not Deutschmark. It's the truth. And remember what Jesus said. And it's the truth that will set you free. These statements or promises, if you'll notice in chapter one, I mean chapter seven, verse one, it says, "Therefore, having these promises, these statements are promises of God to you, promises of freedom." Let me just go back through them and label each statement with a word. He says, "I will dwell in them and walk among them." What does that mean? It means you will experience my presence. You know when we're doing it our way. You know what we experience? Turmoil. When we do it God's way, when we're pure of heart, Jesus said we'll see God. We'll experience God moving in our life. Secondly, He says, I'll be their God and they shall be My people. In other words, you'll have an identity. We'll be children of God. But you know, if we're walled off and got little relationships over here and some over here and some are holy and some are not, we don't know who we are. We've got spiritual schizophrenia. And that doesn't feel freeing. That feels like we're always trying to cover our rear end. So we won't get caught. So somehow we won't get ensnared in this entanglement that we're creating for ourselves. You'll have an identity. Thirdly, he says, I will welcome you. That is, you'll feel fully accepted. Some people walk into this room each week and it's torment for them. The reason it's torment is because they're so afraid. Is he going to say this or don't say that? Because they've got these little, little things that they're trying to protect, trying to hold on to, to squeeze a little bit of meaning out of their life. Maybe it's a relationship. And maybe tonight you're feeling trapped by the words that I'm speaking. When you give those things up, it's like the fight is over. And you come in here and it's like a whole different service because you feel at home. You feel welcomed. You feel welcomed by God Himself. That's the freedom Paul wants for these people and for you. And then lastly, he says, and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. That is, you will be deeply loved. The kind of love that a son or daughter receives from a loving father. And you know, the good news is this. A loving father never withholds good gifts from his children. You know it says that in Matthew? Jesus said that. That your father, your heavenly father, wants to give you good gifts. And I believe that those good gifts include good relationships, friendships, and even a mate. Except they'll be the right ones not the wrong ones. They'll be the ones who will impel you out into freedom, not the ones who will restrict your affections into prison. You feeling trapped here tonight? You feel trapped in a relation, relationship, relationally trapped? You've got some friends on one side who are Christians and you've got some relationships that you're entertaining who are not and you feel kind of torn between the two and you're not sure really what you want to do with your life. Do you feel like that? If you do, let me just give some concluding considerations for you. First of all, you need to decide what real freedom is. In other words, you need to come to terms with the definition of freedom. Is freedom doing whatever you want with whomever you want? As we talked about in the beginning, is that freedom? Now the Bible calls that independence. It doesn't call it freedom. Will that give you what you want? Will you kind of become yourself in that particular path? Or is freedom when you choose for yourself with nobody else pressuring you? Because you don't need to feel my pressure or anybody else's pressure. But when you choose for yourself without coercion, that freedom is trusting and obeying God. The God who created you. The God who wants to fulfill His life in you 
and to set you free. Those are two totally different definitions of freedom. But you can't play the game between both. You've got to choose one of those definitions. Secondly, if you feel trapped, may I suggest that you open up and talk about it with some Christians. Don't draw back from them. Maybe you're entertaining marrying a non-Christian. Maybe you're entertaining going into a work relationship with a non-Christian. Don't draw back from the Christians who are questioning that. Go talk to some. Do some original research, such as, if you're a young lady here tonight or a young man and you're thinking about getting engaged to a non-Christian, before you do that, find somebody here in this body, and there are some who would love to talk to you who are married now to a non-Christian. And talk to them about what it's really like on the other side. If you're about to enter into a work agreement, some of you men, some kind of real intimate partnership, before you do that, why don't you talk to some of the men of our church? Or ladies, for you, as with some of the ladies perhaps, who have entered into work agreements in the past with non-Christians, who've come into these, quote, deals. Find out what were the results of those. See, that's just doing your own original research. That's just being honest. That's just opening up. That's being free. That's not trying to deceive yourself. That's just getting the facts before you act. It's good that you're quiet because I think you're thinking. Then the last thing I would say is just this. Remember, real freedom is not the result of living in the right country. Real freedom is the result of making right choices. And the choice is yours. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.